It would be easy to look at the piece of paper in front of you and assume that the words we're about to read are all of equal value to every other word in the page. That's really not true. In many of our Bibles, the words we're about to read would be in red. They were spoken by our King Jesus to his disciples in response to two questions they asked him just before this. When is all this going to happen? And what are the signs of your coming? So what we're about to read in Mark chapter 13 is a partial answer to those questions. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me? But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it not, may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or, look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Thank you, Andy. And welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you. Good to have you here with us tonight. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it's my privilege and honor to be able to open up the word with and for you this evening. And so if you're not already there in your Bibles, if you'd turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Several years ago, I had opportunity to uh, go to a Bucks game and experience what turned out to be maybe the most unique performance of the national anthem that I'd ever seen. Many of you may have seen something like this. To me, it was brand new as of about four or five years ago. But what happened is a, a gentleman by the name of Joe Everson um, got up in front of the uh, got, got up in front of the crowd, and in front of him was a black and blue canvas. And as we were looking at it, kind of wondering what it was he was going to do, and and what his intentions were as he began to actually sing the national anthem, he, he grabbed two paintbrushes and with both hands began to paint an image onto this canvas. And as he continued to watch and listen to the words of the song and, and, and try to figure out what it was that he was doing, very quickly it became apparent that what were seemingly random swatches and spots and lines were meant to form some sort of an image. But try as you might to discern what that image was going to be. At least I was unable to put it together. And as he got to the end of the Star Spangled Banner, I still could not make out what the picture was. But finally, as he got to that line, the home of the brave, he grabbed what looked like a wide putty knife and he slid red and white stripes 
along a portion of the painting with a flourish, he spun the canvas upside down. And upon turning it over, he revealed a stylized rendition of the photo of the Marines raising the flag at Iwo Jima. It was one of the most unique things that I've ever seen, and I mentioned his name, Joe Everson, just so that you can go look it up if you've never seen anything like it. The picture itself was striking, the moment itself was moving, but none of it made any kind of sense until that grand reveal. It took him in that moment turning the picture to the right perspective for the observers who were looking at all of the signs and at all of the images and were expecting some sort of patriotic display. It took him actually turning that picture to the right orientation in order for us to understand everything that had just taken place. And I mention all of that to say this, when we come to portions of scripture like the one that Andy read for us this evening and we think and start talking about the end times, I begin to think about that very same moment because much like that painting, there will be be things, perhaps many things, perhaps most things even, that we will not fully understand until we reach glory and are able to look back. And that's an important thing to keep in mind when we come to a text of scripture like this because the tendency among many within the Christian world, is to begin to speak dogmatically, even defensively, about the specifics of the end times, and more than that, and more more alarming than that, to lack grace in disagreeing with one another. If the first coming of Jesus Christ stands as any kind of example to modern-day Christians, then we ought to be both humble and gracious regarding the specifics of prophecy. Because the Jews at the time of Christ's first coming uh, had all of the specific prophecies that pertained to the coming of the one, the Messiah, the Jesus Christ. They had all of the information that they needed. They had the book of Isaiah. They had all of its prophecies. Certainly, they had the book of Genesis that foretold the one who was going to come and crush the head of the serpent, Satan. They had all of the information in front of them to describe and define the things that were going to be in place in order for the Messiah to come. And in fact, they were actively looking for him to come, and they still missed him. So what I want to suggest to you as we look at this text and as we move forward again next week to look at the remainder of the chapter, what I want to suggest to you is that we keep in mind the overarching purpose of what it is that Jesus is sharing with us in this text. Because when we come to to biblical language about the end times, the temptation that we have is to get lost in the details. And it's not that the details are unimportant. By no means are the details unimportant. But but our tendency is to lose the forest for the trees. We tend to try to make associations and make narratives fit with our understanding of the world. We tend to be rather focused on our own personal experiences and on the generational experiences that we share. In other words, we have a tendency to become singularly focused about the end times in relation to how it directly affects me. And for centuries, even millennia, Christians have been distracted by what the purpose of Christ's words in texts like this are actually about. We need to remember that our purpose is always to see where and how Jesus reveals himself to us through our texts. 
And if we remember back, you have to remember back now three weeks because a lot has transpired. And so we were in uh, Hebrews and in the book of James. And then if you remember three, back, three weeks back ago, which for some of you might as well be a year ago. But if you can remember far that, that, that far back as we began the Olivet Discourse, uh, it started with the disciples, as Andy mentioned, asking these questions to Jesus. And they're saying, look how amazing the temple is. Do you see how beautiful the structure is of the temple? And Jesus' response to them is strange to their ears. Rather than admiring the structure, his response is, do you understand that the temple is going to be ripped apart stone by stone? And that was unthinkable for a Jew at this time. They had already experienced the destruction of God's dwelling place. And the idea that once again they would be facing the destruction of God's dwelling place was unfathomable. If they were to lose God's dwelling place, the place where God himself dwelled, then what would that say of their nation? What would that say of their God? What would that say of their station in the world? What would it say of God's promises and deliverances of them? But I think Jesus gives us insight into his motivation when he begins to start all of these details, when he finally says for us in verse 23 these words. He says, but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. And that's important because you have to remember Remember, he's speaking to those who are about to become known as Christians. These disciples were going to be the first leaders of the church. They were going to take on that moniker for themselves. And in being called Christians, they were actually being called little Christ. And like Christ, they were going to experience a fate, a destiny, a destructive end, a painful end for most of them. That still at this point, they were not prepared for. And they were not going to have Jesus physically present with them to handle it. And so Jesus, being the good shepherd, wants to prepare them. He gives them these words and he says, I want you to be on guard. I want you to know that these things are going to happen so that you can be prepared when they actually come. And in seeing the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jesus Christ, then you will, you will be, able to be able to believe even deeper in who Jesus Christ is. This is similar to what Jesus does throughout the New Testament text. We find him saying things like this in John chapter 14, for instance, when Jesus tells the disciples that it was a good thing for him to leave them. In fact, he says, it's necessary for me to leave because if I leave, the Father will send another one, a, a comforter. He will send his Holy Spirit to be with you, to indwell you. And in verse 29 of John 14, he says, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Jesus is taking every opportunity that he has to reinforce his faithfulness, his promise, his sureness in difficult times for his people. He wanted to give them notice beforehand so that they would trust him when the moment of suffering came. And so here he says to the disciples, be on guard, be ready for the difficulty to come. Understand that there's going to be trials and tribulations. Understand that there is going to be difficult, difficult experiences ahead of you. And by extension, he writes also to you and me some 2,000 years later that trials and tribulations would always be present in the lives of those who know Christ. And that what was going to happen in that first century was very likely a foreshadowing of the end of the world itself. Now it's easy for modern Western readers like you and like me to view the guarantee of suffering, which is, which is actually what we're being given in this text, 
and to look around at the spiritual degradation around us, the rise of neo-paganism, and to view all of those things as a harbinger of the end of days. But do we understand throughout the course of history that trials and persecution are not the exception, but rather they form the natural habitat of the Christian? That what is actually unique through the course of history is what we in this country have been experiencing for the past couple of hundred years. A time in which Christians largely have been able to openly worship Christ, to gather freely with no, with no fear of government intervention, with no fear of people breaking in and arresting, with no fear of being mistreated or, or mishandled. But that is the exception in the course of human history, not the norm. From the torments of Nero in the first century to the Spanish Inquisition of the 15th century to the brutality experienced at the hands of Stalin and Mao in the last century, history points to the reality of Jesus' warnings. But lest we feel overwhelmed and hopeless at reading texts like this one, Remember that we're going to cover Jesus' promises of hope and victory in the text that we cover next week. But as Dave mentioned a few weeks ago, when we come to texts like this one, it's worth remembering that there is, that, that, uh, there is most often an immediate application for the original audience, and there is likewise a future application for us, and there is yet another future application for the time nearing the return of Christ. But notice throughout the text how often Jesus gives us instructions. There's some 19 different commands that are found in these particular verses. He's giving us instruction for how to view trials and tribulations. How do we view sufferings and persecution? How do we face difficulty in this life? And in giving us that instruction, Jesus is laying a pattern not only for this first generation, but for every generation to follow of what it actually is to live in light of Jesus' return whether that happens tomorrow or in another 2,000 years. And so we pick up where we left off three weeks ago. The disciples have asked how they will know when the destruction of the temple was coming and Jesus' answer. We find him continuing his answer here in verse 14, and here's what he says. He says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now Jesus uses language here that is unfamiliar to most of us in the West. It's unfamiliar to modern Christians unless you, unless you grew up in some sort of a Jewish context. The, the phrase abomination of desolation is a strange one to our ears, but it would have been very familiar to these original Jewish hearers. Because this language came up throughout the prophetic texts of the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Daniel, in chapters 9, 11, and 12, you can find that phrase, abomination of desolation, coming up several times in that text. But I want to point you specifically to Daniel 11, verse 31. I'll read it for you. Here's what it says. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And Daniel, in that portion, describes a king, a wicked person, who is going to desecrate the temple, who is going to come in by force, take over the city of Jerusalem, take over the temple in specific, and was going to offer a sacrifice on 
on the temple altar that would be a desecration to God himself. And the Jews at this point, when Jesus is speaking, had already witnessed one example of this. When in 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes had sacked Jerusalem, he'd gone into the temple, he'd taken the copies of the Torah that were there, and he'd ripped them to pieces and he'd burned them, these sacred texts that belonged to the Jews. And as if that wasn't enough, he erected a statue to the god Zeus in the middle of the temple, and then he burned pig's flesh as an offering to Zeus in the holy place of God. And it gives meaning, it gives weight to that phrase, abomination of desolation. And upon upon this desolation, upon this desecration, the faithful Jews that were gathered in the city of Jerusalem began to flee to the outer perimeter. They began to run. And Jesus is telling the disciples here, understand this is going to happen again. What you experienced, what the Jewish people had experienced some 190 years earlier was going to be repeated. Something else was going, to be ha- was going to happen in which the temple itself was going to be destroyed. But here, Jesus makes an interesting change of pronoun. Rather than referring to, the, to this abomination as an act, he references a specific individual. He says, and when you see him standing where he ought not be. That this next abomination was going to be a person, not just an action. Now, if you begin to read prophetic commentary, there's all kinds of opinion around this text. There are some people who think that all of this has already happened, that all of this is past tense, all of it's historical, and, and we'll talk about that in a moment. There are other people who say that all of this is yet to come, that nothing that Jesus is prophesying here has yet, has yet to have happened, and that this is all coming at the final judgment of the world. But, There's certainly a lack of clarity in in this particular text around what is being referenced. Some people think it was a reference specifically to Caligula, who had ordered that his own statue, a statue in his image, be placed in the Jewish temple. Others think it was a reference to the coming Roman occupation in which the Romans were going to come in and, and destroy the city, and in which soldiers were going to establish sacrifices in the temple. But regardless of how this abomination is personified, it is clear that what's at work here is the spirit of Antichrist. And when we say spirit of Antichrist, we're talking about something that knows no generational bounds, but is specifically posed against God. It is a demonic work. It is Satan opposed to God using every opportunity he can to try to destroy the people of God and draw people to himself. And so Jesus gives very practical and pastoral instruction in this text. He says, let those who are in Judea at this moment flee to the mountains. And verse 30 gives a special insight here. It indicates that this destruction of the temple was going to happen in their generation, that all this was going to take place while this generation was still living. And here's what Jesus says to them. He says, and when it happens, verse 15, let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days... Pray that it may not happen in winter. I mean, Jesus is painting a bleak picture. 
But in painting this picture, he's giving very practical and real advice to his followers because what happened at this time when foreign invading armies would come into the city, the Jews had a typical practice, which is that everybody ran to the temple fortress. It was the strongest building in town. It was the largest building in town. It was where the army was going to gather around and fortify and try to protect the people. And so the natural instinct of a Jew at this particular point in time was, if something goes down, I'm going to gather my most precious belongings and I'm going to get into the temple and that's where I'm going to find safety. But Jesus says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when this abomination happens, don't run to the temple flee to the mountains. He says, don't stop and get your wedding photos or your fine china or your favorite heirloom. You, you escape with your life. You run. And this prophecy of Jesus was experienced in a profound way in A.D. 67. Because the Roman historian Dio, writing of the Roman sacking of Jerusalem, said this, the Jews resisted Titus with more ardor than ever, as if it were kind of a windfall, an unexpected piece of luck to fall fighting against a foe far outnumbering them. They were not overcome until a part of the temple had caught fire. Then some impaled themselves voluntarily on the swords of the Romans. Others slew each other. Others did away with themselves or leapt into the flames. They all believed, especially the last, that it was not a disaster, but a victory, salvation, and happiness to perish together with the temple. Now, what's actually happening in that text is this. These, the Jews in AD 69, experiencing the onslaught of the Romans, had run into the temple, those who had ignored the instruction of Christ, and they were thinking in this moment, we've got to get to the temple because this is our good luck charm. This is the dwelling place of God. This is where God himself lives. And so this is the place where we're going to be safe. But the historian Josephus, writing about this exact same event, said that when Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed, 97,000 people were taken captive. And 1.1 million were killed. Now, there seems to be a conflict in this text, if you're paying attention. Why is Jesus warning the disciples that they were going to suffer for his sake, and yet instructing them to run? Well, Jesus is essentially communicating in this text that to put one's faith in the temple was folly. And so he instructs his disciples to leave the city, not out of fear, but rather because he wanted to spare them from the destruction that they were going to face. Do we understand, Christian, that though we're thankful for beautiful buildings like this one in which to meet, God is no more present here in this particular space, this geographical location, than he is when his church is gathered anywhere? That buildings, while being a great gift, to the gathered church, no more make the church than anything else. To use the old cliche that the church, in fact, is the people, not the building. But the Jews fell underneath that old mindset that what was most valuable was the temple itself. They put their faith in a place. And I think Jesus' instruction, the practical application for us is this, 
We don't die foolishly in service to an inanimate place that we have somehow imbued with significance. If you are to die, let it be for the Savior who matters most. So as Christians, there are things worth dying for. And then there are other things for which we shouldn't be willing to suffer a paper cut. And spiritual maturity is being able to tell the difference between those two things. But he continues, verse 19, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. He's saying this is a unique occurrence in the history of the time and the world. And at the Lord, verse 20, notice this verse because it's profound. And notice the language with which Jesus speaks. All of this is prophetic. All of this is future. And notice how he speaks in verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Now we see something in this passage about the attribute, about one particular attribute of God, and I don't want us to miss it because I think it is profound. And I'm honest with you, I'd never noticed this verse. I didn't find I didn't find much in terms of commentaries on this, but this is one of those verses that just leapt out. Jesus here is talking about a brutal, brutal future event. 97,000 imprisoned, 1.1 million killed who died with the sword or starved to death as they were hiding from the Roman army. And as Jesus talks about this brutal event, he suddenly switches tenses and he begins to say in the past tense, if the Father had not intervened, no one would have been spared. Now, mind you, he's talking about something that has yet to happen. He's writing some 30 to 40 years before this particular event has even taken place, and yet he's speaking of the past tense of the Father, saying, if the Father had not intervened, no one would have been spared. See, we tend to think of God as powerful, yes. But we also tend to think of him as having limitations of dimension the same way that we do. In other words, for a lot of people, their view of God is similar, though we would never phrase it that way, as as the way we would view a superhero. Intense, incredible, unmatched power. But we forget the magnitude and the breadth of the God that we serve. See, we have a very linear view of our world. We live on a spectrum. We think of things in terms of linear time. So our life began at a particular point and it's gone on for X number of years and at some point our life will come to an end and, and that particular span will define our existence. And so when we're in the middle of things, when we're in the middle of life, particularly when we're in the middle of suffering or things we can't explain or things we, wanna, things we want to wish away, it's in those moments where we begin to wonder, why does God allow the things that he allows? Why doesn't God intervene in a particular scenario the way that I would want, or perhaps even expect him to intervene? But Jesus, in this prophecy, references the fact that the Father shortened, past tense, the days of suffering that laid ahead. See, here's the truth about our God. The future is not just a thing that God knows 
It is a place where he is. Do you understand how different that idea is? That he doesn't just have knowledge of what is to come, but he's not bound by time the same way that you and I are. He's not limited in the same way we are. That that he actually invented, created, formed time. That he sits outside of time. That time, just like the universe, is something that rests within his hands. A day is to the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as to a day. And if you remember a few weeks ago, Dave touched on this idea as well, that, that all of this sits within his control. And so what is God's motivation in shortening the suffering that was to come? And we find the answer in this text. The preservation and the perseverance of his saints. God here is motivated to act out of a perfect love for his elected and chosen children. He intervenes for the sake of of those who are precious to him. So why do I draw out this one obscure verse in the middle of an obscure text? Because what this verse means is that whatever hardship you have experienced, are experiencing, or will experience, is not unknown to God. That there is nothing that will come into your life that catches your God by surprise. That there is nothing that happens that falls outside of his control. And that there is nothing that happens in your life about which your God does not care immensely. Whatever you've experienced, are experiencing, or will experience is not unknown to him. And in fact, it is being used to work out your salvation. So 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talk about that whole idea that we have placed our faith, past tense, in Jesus Christ for our salvation. That our salvation is secure and firm because of what Jesus Christ accomplished for you and for me on the cross. But there is still something mysterious that happens in the life of the believer in which we are being saved. That's literally the translation from 1 Corinthians 15. That our salvation is is secure in the work of Jesus Christ when we actually come to know him. But that our salvation is is also being worked out. It doesn't reach its completion until we reach heaven. And because of that, God cares about everything that happens in your life. If there's nothing about who you are or what you've experienced or the difficulty of a day from the most minute to the most significant that somehow goes unnoticed by God or about which he does not care. And in fact, he uses those things to form us into his image, to shape us and to train us and to mold us and to call us. So as we started off talking about when we read prophetic texts, it is worth remembering that there is most often an immediate application to the original audience and an applicable truth for us today. And so hear the warning of what that means. If we look at this text and we only see historical, historical accomplishments of the prophecy, we miss the truth that it pretends for Christians today and in the future. 
And if we look at this text and we only see a future application to some yet unaccomplished event, we have missed an example of God's providential grace on his people. But when we look holistically at what these texts communicate, we walk away with a picture of God as victor and Lord. That though his people may experience suffering at the hands of the evil one, God neither forgets his elect nor is limited in his ability to shorten their suffering. And even in the midst of hardship, your pain in this life is not wasted. So the song that we sang earlier, Blessed Be Your Name, says this, Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful where your streams of abundance flow. And then conversely, in the very next line, it says, Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. And that song draws its theology from the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 21, where Job has just experienced unbelievable pain and difficulty, the kind of pain that no one in this room, no matter how difficult our life, has actually experienced. And yet in that moment, Job cries out to God and he says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you understand, brother and sister, that God owes us nothing? He owes us nothing other than the judgment we are due for our sin. And yet God in his goodness pours out his grace and his mercy on us. And Jesus said all of this knowing whereof he spoke. Because remember where Jesus is when he's sharing this prophecy. He is just days from his own crucifixion. He's days from his own suffering and trial. And as Jesus Christ hung on the cross and ultimately gave up the ghost, as he hung dead on the cross of Golgotha at that very moment, Satan rejoiced. He rejoiced in his own apparent victory, thinking that he had won, thinking that the battle was finished, that the Christ, the Son of God, the God-man himself was now dead on a tree. Now what more can he do? But as we know from the book of Genesis, that was just a bruising of God's heel. Because in that very moment, Satan, unbeknownst to him, had experienced his own fate being sealed. Because when Jesus Christ rose from the dead three days later, he struck the death blow to Satan and his horses. So understand what that means. While the spiritual battle still rages, and understand, brothers and sisters, that it is very real today. As the spiritual battle rages, the war itself has already been won. The victory has been secured. So take heart and be on guard. Troubles very likely may lie ahead, 
but the Son has experienced our difficulty. And the Father shortens our difficulty. And the Spirit endures with us in our difficulty. Our God is not dead. He is alive. And that is our hope and our promise. And we'll talk about that next week. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you gave this text that in reading it, we might believe that everything Jesus prophesied would happen, has happened, and will happen. And you've preserved this word for us so that we likewise would be on guard. So God, to the extent that we lack faith in the here and now, would you remind us that there are things that may not make sense until we look back through the lens of eternity. That right now the canvas may look random and splotched, but that in your presence you'll turn it around so that we can see exactly what you were doing all along. For now we see as in a glass dimly, but then we shall see face to face. So God, we pray that you would keep our eyes focused on you. Keep us from arrogance and from defeatism. Allow us to make the plain things the main things. And remind us that even as the spiritual battle rages around us, the victory has been secured and the outcome is sure. So we trust in King Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.